0: Thank you for joining us for another episode of EdChoice Chats. Today, our guest is EdChoice CEO and President Robert Enlow, who's going to join us for a uh, talk, a discussion about what's going on in federal education reform policy right now. Thank you for joining us, Robert. Glad to be here. All right. So can you, before we get into the, the nitty gritty of all this, can you just give us an overview of what's been happening at the federal level really in the last six months?
1: So what's been happening with FedEd, as I like to call it? Um so in the last six months, you've seen some growth in school choice. The D.C. Opportunity Scholarship Program has been reauthorized by Congress. This is a good thing. and The administration was able to get that through uh, pretty quickly after it got a, a, in office. So we're glad to see that program being reauthorized and not under threat, it looks like, for the foreseeable future. Um, so we're really pleased about that. The other thing we're seeing is after the November elections, we're seeing a significant elevation in the dialogue about school choice. It certainly was a campaign plank for the current administration, and they haven't stopped talking about it since day one. Uh, There is a strong core belief that parents should be free to choose and that the federal government should come alongside them and help them, whether that be through Title I expansion or through uh, private school choice programs or through increasing charter schools. That said, the fact they have been talking about it and elevating debate has created a lot of consternation. Um, it, It is a very, very sad situation we're in in some ways right now, in the sense that this has become such a partisan dialogue, um, and it's as bad as I've ever seen it, even from the early days. And I don't think uh, the administration's only to blame for that. I don't think the, the reformers are only to blame for that. I don't think I think all of us are to blame for that in many ways. And and what we're missing here is this opportunity to have a real dialogue about what, what we should be doing and how we should be educating kids instead of having this blame game uh, and and partisan rhetoric being thrown around. There are friends of mine in this movement who are ed reformers on the left who literally sent out emails saying you should never work with anyone in the administration. Frankly, that's ridiculous. And I would never uh, do that to anyone that they supported. And I frankly don't think they should do it to anyone that is talking about a school choice. That said, the folks on the right have to actually be re- recognizing the difficulty and the challenges that some of the conversations and the rhetoric bring. And so, again, what I think is happening in the framework and the landscape and in federal educational reform is there's... A lot of talk about it, but a lot of people talking past each other and a lot of partisan dialogue that's not really helpful.
0: Well, and that's why we're here talking today. And EdChoice is a nonpartisan organization, been around for 21 years now. And so one of the things, you know, uh, EdChoice is known for is is research and also coming up with uh, structures and constructs to have debates like this one, so we can strip out that partisanship. And we were talking, we've been talking about the three pillars of Fed reform that, uh, that EdChoice has come up with to kind of frame this national dialogue. So can you expand on those a little bit?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I, I appreciate you saying that we're nonpartisan. We, we spend a lot of time in at- at Ed choice trying to make sure that we are the trusted experts and the honest brokers. We've spent a lot of time doing that because we believe that our word is our bond and that we don't want to put out stuff that's not able to be verified into and, and validated across all sides of the aisle. That said, here are our principles of federal reform, right? So, look, there are things that the federal government has direct control and responsibility for, uh, and those are military families, uh, Bureau of Indian Education. A D.C. scholarship program in Title I, just to name four, right? We believe that they should have every right, and in fact should, spend significant time growing and increasing the choices for families within those programs. Uh, An effort for military uh, ESAs, uh, Bureau of Indian Education ESAs or vouchers would be great. Uh, Increasing 529s for K-12 would be fantastic, or converting Coverdell savings accounts to 529s would be fantastic. Uh, Increasing Title I support... For all schools, whether they be public, private, or charter, and increasing the kind of uh, portability of those, that's all well and good. Those are within the realm of the federal government. So I want to say off the, hand, off the bat that we would support those kind of things because the federal government is directly responsible for those. Now, what do you do when it comes to, should we have a national voucher program? Should we have a national tax credit scholarship program? What do we do about these other programs that are being offered? Um there are potentials for Ed choice to be able to support some of those programs if and only if they, I think, meet our three principles of federal reform, or as you're calling it, FedEd reform, which I like. Um, the first principle, very clearly, is that this has to be state-directed and state-centric, right? The vast majority of money in K-12 education is at the state and local level. Um, the vast minority of money is from the federal level. And yet at the same time, Uh, we cannot have mandates coming in states. States are the laboratories of innovation and and democracy. We should actually encourage that type of innovation. There should be differences between states when it comes to trying different programs. So any program that would say states are required to participate, or states must do something, would create a scenario where there's a federal mandate, and we would probably oppose that. Our our second pillar of federal reform is is also very simple. It has to be parent-friendly and parent-usable, right? So You can't create a program where parents don't understand it and can't access it. I mean, that would be a a travesty, right? We've seen too many federal programs that become overly bureaucratic and make it very difficult for parents to choose uh, and to be able to access choice. That's not what we want. So whatever program has to come out, it has to be parent-friendly. And third, we cannot have educators or schools being encumbered with a ton of regulations, right? You know, my friend Lisa Keegan used to be the superintendent of public instruction in Arizona used to tell me she got 9% of her money from the federal government but spent 50% of her staff time on federal bureaucracy. We cannot have a scenario where we layer more bureaucracy and more regulations on schools. Uh, we need to have less and more smart regulations as opposed to to more. And certainly anything that can be established from a federal level then applies to every school, again, now you're breaking the laboratories of democracy. Up. So this is, So our three principles are really straightforward. It needs to be state-centric and state-directed. state, state uh, directed. It needs to be parent-friendly and parent-usable and easy for parents to use. And it needs to be free of unnecessary regulations.
0: So really what I'm kind of hearing you say is you'd probably prefer the federal government stay out of this altogether, but... Obviously, we have an administration that's that's very choice friendly. Wants to push something nationally. What role? Talk about what role ed choice is going to play in that debate. As as you said, an honest broker, uh, as a as a trusted resource.
1: Well, so let me step back one second on that. What the fe- what the federal government could do, right, it, it, with our principles, considering our principles. Look, what they're planning to do with charter schools and expanding that growth is fantastic, right? More and more facilities efforts would be great. We would actually encourage them to increase the facilities funding to include private schools as well. Um, so I think that's a fantastic move. I think the expansion of Title One, you know, adding a billion dollars is a good thing. Um, again, I don't agree with everything in the budget, but there are certain things we agree with. The third thing is they could design a tax credit program um, that is state opt-in, that is state-centric, that is parent-friendly, and that is not uh, full of regulations that I think we could get behind, so long as it's simple and easy to use and where states are the primary leaders of it. So I think they can do it, and I think frankly this administration would like to do that. Um, and I think they're worrying about how to get there, right? So, what, is, what role does Ed Choice play in that, right? What is the role of Ed Choice in, in general? So, Ed Choice in, in, in the federal reform um, world has three goals, right? We've got to show people in DC who are often disconnected from the world what the real world looks like with people who are using Choice. We have to show them what's happening in states and show them what parents are doing and show them how they're using this program, these programs in the 30 states around the country. So we have to show them what's happening in their home states. When I I remember talking with Senator Collins a long time ago, didn't even know there was a choice program in Vermont, right? But it's the oldest one ever. So we need to show legislators in D.C. what's happening in their own states. Two, I think it's really important that we show the data. We just show what what the research is saying, right? And We we know on the whole research is generally positive about school choice. Uh, We, of course, aren't going to sugarcoat it when it's not. But we believe the vast bulk of the data is positive. And so we want to make sure they see that and have access to that information. And then third, we want to make sure that we're one of the people there in D.C. that say you don't have to do everything from D.C. You can actually trust people around the country. You can trust state legislators. You can trust parents. And so we want to be a little bit of a watchdog in a meaningful way to say, hey, maybe you don't want to do it that way. Maybe you want to be, let the states have the power and control there. So those are the three functions that I see us having.
0: Okay. Well, talk a little bit about, I mean, one argument that we've heard made for a national program is that there are states where there is no choice right now and and very likely couldn't be because of that state's constitution or that state's history. So, in a way, wouldn't a federal school choice program be a, a tremendous benefit to the families in those states? Or would you rather, you know, continue to work in those states and, and maybe overcome some of those legal roadblocks? Uh, which, which would you prefer? And how do you answer the argument that these are parents who just don't have any choice right now, so isn't some choice, even federal choice, better for them?
1: So that's a, I'm going to be honest, that's a conundrum, right? And that's a pretty good question. Um, on one hand, my heart says, oh my God, any kids we can get choice, the better, right? I mean, that's what my heart is. That's what I understand, but my fear, my, f- my fear, maybe be the wrong one. My my experience and history in this movement has shown that if I get five people choice at the expense of everyone else, that does me no good, and that does the movement no good. So, you know, I've heard the secretary say, "What will happen if uh, New York can't doesn't have choice and they never will, or Michigan because of their Blaine Amendment uh, will?" Well, if they had a tax credit program and a bunch of donors from Michigan start giving money to a bunch of folks in Indiana. My guess is pretty quickly, Michigan might start having a conversation about this, right? So you could put competitive pressures on states by allowing freedom for donors to to, to deliver funds elsewhere. Um, I think we have to be very careful. Milton Friedman used to have this statement I, I loved very much. Um, if you put the government in charge of the Sahara Desert in seven years, you'd have a shortage of sand. Um, it's one of my favorite quotes of all time because it really does show how... We tend to allow our institutions to do things for us instead of us doing it for ourselves. And as a result, we tend to get to a point where we we say we'll accept so much regulation that we become less empowered. And the problem with government, whether we like it or not, is the only power it has is the power to coerce. And so I don't know if I want the government coercing states, the federal government coercing states in the name of 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 some number of kids. That said, I want those kids to have education. Heck, you know what? I'll put together a fund to help them move to states that have choice, right? But the reality is I'm not sure we want the government to be in a position to coerce states.
0: That makes sense. And, I, I you know, don't do not do that just yet. I think Ed Choice probably needs you at the helm for a little bit longer <laughs> given the current state of affairs. But I, I'm glad you brought up Dr. Friedman um, because my next question is um, – Obviously, he hasn't been with us for for a few years now. But what do you think he would think about the current debate and what's happening right now in Washington, which was a place he didn't he did not love? Um, and what I mean not to not to coin the phrase, but what do you think Milton would do right now? Uh,
1: I think Milton would be one of the loudest voices encouraging us to think about the impact of having a federal national program. He would return to his old studies of the Interstate Commerce Commission. He would look at all of the regulations that we've expanded and grown to the point where we don't actually have, in his argument, of a very free society. He would probably refer to to all the criminal justice problems that we're having because of rules and regulations. He would refer you to the administ- administrative state, which has become a, essentially a quasi-government. Right? I think I think Milton would be very very concerned um, to give up and cede more power to people who really aren't. Um, accountable to the people that live near them.
0: Well, and you, um, not to venture too far away from the topic of educational choice at the federal level, but you have a publication coming out later this year um, that reprises Dr. Friedman's 1955 publication, The Role of Government in Education, uh, and talks more about maybe where we are, but also what obstacles we have faced uh, over the last, what would that be now? Almost 70 years, in, in getting these programs passed, even at the state level. So, talk a little bit about that paper and, and what you hope to accomplish with it.
1: So, so uh, we had not had a real conversation since we started this movement. It, you know, it, obviously, it started in many ways with Dr. Friedman in 1955 with the idea. It grew uh, throughout the years and then sort of took took off in 1996 onwards, and particularly took off in 2010. People have forgotten. What, what Dr. Friedman's original essay was titled, which is, The Role of Government in Education. So I think it's really about time that we really start to rethink and maybe revisit what the role of government in education is. Um, is it the role of government to coerce students to go to schools based on where they live? Is that the right role? Is it the role of government to fund uh, schools at different levels and fund students in different, and with different amounts? Is that the right role of government? Who really is accountable? Is the government accountable or are the people accountable? So there's lots of questions that we should be asking about what the proper role of government is. One of the things I think, however, that Dr. Friedman missed when he thought when he was writing in the 50s and writing earlier, uh, is I don't think he realized how entrenched the bureaucracy really was in education. But also not just how entrenched the bureaucracy was, how um, cultural the idea of public education had become how ingrained into our culture because it's been based on where we live. And so breaking these sort of historical cultural mores of home equals school um, is something I don't think he thought all the way through, and it's certainly one of our obstacles that we have right now. So what we're trying to do is, is, is sort of ask the seminal question again, what is the right role of government in the 21st century? What are the obstacles facing us in achieving the right role? And frankly, what should that role be?
0: Well, and it's interesting you mentioned that the cultural um, fixation or affinity for public education back in the days of the old, the red schoolhouse and everybody went to the same place. Do you see this as a generational issue? And what what does Choice's research say about that?
1: So, it's definitely a generational issue, and it's sort of funny because I'm I'm now old, right? So, I mean, I'm still one of those people. I mean, I'm, uh, that. I walked to school every morning, that that eighth of a mile up the hill. Both ways both in the ways, snow, I hope. Both ways in the snow. Well, you went uphill one way and uphill the other way. Absolutely. A, um, but different ways. But, uh, you know, I, I still walked to school because that's how we did it, right? Um, but that was in the 70s. And it was from the 70s onward where you had this massive consolidation and massive centralization. Um, and so I think the people who have been most challenged by that centralization are the people who are now you know, uh, 25 and 30, right, as opposed to my age. Um, so I think what we're finding is is the generations after us see that they want something different, don't have any concerns about options and choices, um, are more concerned about whether there's fraud, are more concerned about whether people are getting accessing choice rather than, than whether there is choice. And so I think what you're going to see is all these debates we're having right now, all this partisan bickering, all this, like, does vouchers hurt, or does charter school do charter schools hurt? I think these folks are going to say it's ridiculous. To give everyone choices and move on already.
0: Well, and I think in in the research that Ed Choice has done, one of the things that comes out, um, and I want you to talk a little bit about this sort of uh, box that sometimes reformers find themselves in, is that parents as they are choosing or new generations of parents as they are coming online, they don't care about test scores. You know, you mentioned some other uh, things that people look at when they choose schools, but one of the big things that came out in a recent survey, uh, a recent report on the DC program is that parents overwhelmingly found their private schools to be safer. And so I guess the question here is, have we been measuring the wrong things and are we truly matching up Uh, the outcomes and the accountability to what the people who are using the system want?
1: Um, Absolutely not, right? Um, We have been, and and so so this is ostensibly the conversation about accountability. What what does accountability really mean? First of all, when I hear anyone use that word accountability, I literally want to throw my hands over their hair and say, what do you really mean? Because most of the time when you get beyond what they really mean, they don't have a clue. And typically they say it's a test score. We know the schools are accountable because of the test scores. It's, it's two things. Either they're taking a test or they're doing what the public schools do in regulations, right? So they're having public school board meetings and they're having state board of accounts, right? They're, that's their accountability. Either they're being bureaucratic or they're taking a test. Um, this is the only time of any kind of movement of any kind of anything I've ever seen where the people who provide the service don't ask the consumers anything about what they want. I mean, I've never, I've been shocked to death by this in my 20 years of doing this, Right. Not once have I seen a a public school system and, frankly, some even charter schools and, frankly, some private schools say, hey, what do my parents really want? How can I serve them better? And if they did that, if they actually spent some time saying, what do our parents want, they would find that parents want safer schools. They would find that parents want consistent values and morals, and they want to have that conversation. One of my good friends says one of the challenges in our traditional public school system is they could tell you not to behave a certain way, but they can't tell you why. Right? And so parents want their children to know why they shouldn't behave a certain way or why they should behave a certain way. So parents want values when you, when you talk to them, when you hear them talk. They want safety. They want the ability to, to have smaller classes. They want teachers that are responsive to them. These are all things that they want. Um, and they want good academics. Now, what we're learning is they don't always describe that as a test score. And they don't always necessarily know exactly what that means. But what we do know from the data is when they're there choosing for three years after three years, they do know what it means, right? So they want good academics. And my friend Pat Wolf has done some research where he, he says the first year their question is like, are we having a good school? And the third year the question is, why didn't we have better growth rated scores? And because you're helping educate and empower parents. Uh, because I think one of the biggest insults we have ever done in this movement, and this is an insult by reformers, um, and that is reformers really don't trust parents, in my opinion, the majority of them. They really think they know better than parents. There's a national organization um, whose, whose founder just came out and partnered with Randy Weingarten to oppose vouchers, saying he really supports choices but not vouchers. Well, the irony, of course, is he went to private school, most likely, um, and he doesn't trust parents.
0: Well, and, and Ed Choice's own research shows that when parents are given the choice and they could go to any school that they want to go to if, mean, if means and resources were no object, they overwhelmingly choose private schools. And so I, I sense a lot of frustration from you. And well, I, wanna...
1: somebody, I think the parents don't just overwhelmingly choose private schools. I think what parents are telling us is they want a mix of options, right So I look at those we, we do this for all of our programs and all of our sorry, all of our surveys ask that question if you were, if your money were no object, which school would you choose? And we ask that in every state we do a poll. And the variations are, are interesting but not huge. So parents a lot of parents want to go to traditional schools and a lot of parents want to go to private schools, And a lot of parents want to go to charter schools. It roughly ends up being 40 public, 40 private, you know, 10 or 12 charter and the rest homeschool, right? And so what's really interesting is parents want a much more diverse set of options than we're giving them. Um, And no one's thinking about that.
0: Well, and this issue, it's interesting because obviously you're part of the movement, have been for for 20 years. Don't remind me. uh, Well, you know, you don't look a day over 30. Sure. Um, A lot of times it can feel like we're talking to each other. But the reality is there was a recent Associated Press poll that showed that most Americans still have very low, if any, awareness of school choice, which in a lot of ways could be seen as a positive. It's it's a blank canvas that we're still able to paint on and persuade with. Um, And I guess my last question is, you know, is the debate and the fact that we are having this issue uh, make a lot more headlines than probably in the past 20 years combined uh, as a result of the election and the administration uh, and having that bully pulpit, is that debate good for the issue and good for the movement just because it's raising awareness? Or is the debate as you, you know, described it to me a little while ago, you know, which is sometimes very polarizing, Is that unhelpful when it comes to letting people know about the issue and that they should be empowered to choose?
1: So I think, you know, you said a sense frustration. I actually think this is where we're most hopeful. Um, We do have a lot of people who don't know anything about this issue. And so that tells me two things. One, we've done a very poor job up to now on educating people about what this issue is, which means we have a real opportunity here. which is the hope, right? And, and I think then in the, as we look at the Ed choice effort, as we look at this movement, we should spend a lot more money and time and effort, talent and treasure on helping people understand just what choices and options are. Helping them understand that when they actually pick up their home and they move to another place, that's actually choosing. Helping them understand that when they, they send their kid to their grandmother's house to live, they're doing so for schooling. Or when they're lying to get into another school district. That that's choosing. Um, that there's a full black market of school choice, but we want to. We also want a non black We want a legal market of school choice, which are charter schools and private school choice, right? So this is what we want. We want to help them understand that magnet schools are ostensibly the same thing. It's private schools. It's choice. It's options. So I think we have a real opportunity here. Um, you did ask though about the administration and whether the the debate has been valuable. Um, I think as a movement, we. We have been petulant teenagers in some ways, um, thinking that people are listening to us more than they really are. And so I think we need to be a little bit more humble about this conversation and realize that, that people don't understand choice, and we have not done a great job of explaining it, and that when people are explaining it and they're coming out against us, that we don't necessarily have the best way to answer that or the best way to solve that. And certainly it doesn't mean that I'm the one who should be out front. We should be looking at how we put parents out in front and how we put educators out in front. I mean, literally, ultimately, this is about how families and educators can educate our children to the betterment of our society. Uh, As I've always said, I don't care if that's done in traditional school, charter school, private school. I don't care if it's done on the moon. I care that it gets done, right? And so I think as a movement, we need to be a little bit more humble and not think we know everything about everything and start really trying to listen to the people who who are in schools and who are educators and who are parents and serve them better and then just listen to what the public at large want of this issue. I, I think over time this discussion about partisanship at the administration level, I think that'll die down. I've seen, I mean, it's really funny, I guess I've been there and done that so many times now. I mean, I've seen I've seen the debate that came up when Clinton was president. I've seen the debate that came up when George Bush was president. And you know, I've seen the debate that came up, you know, in many states on many governor and gubernatorial levels. I mean, these debates have been around for a long time. Um, I think it, it's incumbent upon us to learn that we need to be more humble and share our vision a little bit better.
0: Well, and, and Ed Choice has been around for the last 20 years, so no reason to expect that uh, it wouldn't be around for the next 20, and that extends far beyond this administration into many, many future Well, that's right.
1: And, look, and, and the other thing I would say about that is, look, EdChoice has been very successful in getting new programs on board and getting new organizations and new coalitions built. There's, there's been a ton of success in this movement. We've, we've partnered with charter schools. There's a lot of growth in this movement. There's a lot of dynamism. I, I think right now is the time we need to step back, though, and start saying, how are we going to share this message with the world?
0: I'm hearing a lot of hope and change from you, Robert. There's but, a lot of uh, hope and
1: change here, believe it or not.
0: Well, I, I think, you know, uh, I'm happy to have I you I like add my anything. hope and change as
1: long as I can keep my change in my pocket.
0: Wow. You just took that, like, Obama to the next
1: level. I, I love to. it. I love Sorry, it. Sorry, I had to.
0: Well, um, Robert, thank you so much for joining us today. Is there anything you'd like to add to this conversation about Fed reform or anything else?
1: Uh, no, I think, I think. Uh, well, yes, actually. I'll say it that way. Um, I think if anyone's out there and they're, they're part of this movement, uh, then I think what I would encourage them to start thinking about is how do we come together to get this done? How do we start working better? How do we stop playing ego-driven games? How do we stop thinking that we have the right answers? You know, uh, and how do we start trusting parents most? I- I'm going to end with Milton. Uh, he used to argue with some of his friends, and they would say, "Oh, well, parents don't know how to choose. And he, argue- he said, "I I'll see if I can get this quote right. He said, there are some who believe that parents don't know how to choose. He said, this, I believe, is a gratuitous insult. Parents, and particularly low-income parents, have often, history has shown us, that parents, particularly low-income parents, have chosen wisely and disinterestedly for their children. I think there's a presumption that that some families don't have that capability, and I think we have a lot more to learn that, that, that families do. And as a movement, I would want to encourage anyone who's listening to that to really put your faith into families. Give them the power and the tools. And if you really believe they don't understand, then do what I used to do. Become a social worker and train them.
0: All right. Well, thank you so much, Robert, for for joining us today. And uh, we'll look forward to hearing from you in the future on any number of issues that come up. Uh, Thank you for listening to this episode of Ed Choice Chats and be well.
1: Be well.